Well, we have been going through uh, a what I what I would call brief. You might not call it brief, but a brief series uh, sermon series going through the Lord's Prayer to start uh, the year. And so, our sermon text this morning is Matthew six verses nine through fifteen. So, I'll invite you to turn there if you have a Bible and to stand for the reading of God's holy word this morning. Matthew chapter six verses nine through fifteen. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Well, we're almost, uh, we're almost to the very end of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, We are at the fifth of the six petitions or requests, and we are looking at this morning the one in verse 12, where Jesus tells us to pray simply, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Last uh, Sunday, we looked at the previous petition or request where we asked our Father for what? We asked God for our daily bread. And we saw last Sunday that when you ask God for your, for your daily bread or for our daily bread, you're basically asking Him to meet all of your daily needs for life. So food, shelter, all the things that you need uh, in this life is what's included in that request. And we, we said before that uh, one writer mentioned he wasn't sure if we pray that the most or pray that the least, we often pray uh, most of our prayers and maybe our not-so-great moments. It, it sounds like a shopping list. You know, God, I need this, 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 and this. Uh, and we sometimes forget to uh, ask for the other things and pray for the other things that are found in the Lord's Prayer, which is a pattern prayer for us to teach us the things that we need to pray about. Well, this time in, in the fifth request, we're not asking for daily bread. We're asking for our debts to be Forgiven, or if you look at Luke 11.4, the other text of the Lord's Prayer, he actually uses the word sins, uh, which both really refer to the same thing. And so rather than uh, we're being taught just to pray for our physical needs, here I think we see in the last two requests, which we're going to look at this week and next, that our concern is to be also for our spiritual life. That is our relation, our life in relation to God. So again, there's a balance here. We don't want to be so spiritual as we saw last time, that we don't pray for the things of this life that we need. You know, there's a, such a thing, if I can be permitted to say, that uh, sometimes we try to be more biblical than the Bible. You know, we try to be too spiritual for our own good. And so Jesus says, no, the first thing in the second half of the Lord's Prayer that you pray for is your daily bread. Your, your life in this body and this life matters. And God tells us the Lord Jesus Christ commands us and teaches us to pray for those things. But he also doesn't stop there. Sometimes I think we tend to sort of stop there. We pray for things of this life and leave it at that. And so he teaches us here uh, to pray for the forgiveness of our of our debts and our sins. Now, a number of commentators uh, have pointed out the connection between the previous request for daily bread and this request for forgiveness. And it may sound like a small, insignificant thing, but you'll notice what's the first word in verse 12. It's one of those words you never even give much thought to. It's the word and. So Jesus explicitly, rather, connects our request for daily bread somehow with our request 
for the forgiveness of our debts. That might not seem all that important or noteworthy, but it's not without meaning and significance. What What is the connection between these two requests? Why does Jesus himself actually re- connect them explicitly together? He could have just said, give us our daily bread, period, exclamation point. And then second thing, you know, forgive us our debts. He says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our our debts. How are they related? There's at least two ways, I think, probably more, that, that they are related. The first thing is that without forgiveness of our sins and our debts, our daily bread does us no real good. Billions of people in this world have daily bread and don't have their sins forgiven. And so in a sense... It's it's really impossible to rightly enjoy your daily bread without having your sins forgiven by God. It's really impossible. Thomas Watson, the old Puritan writer, writes this. As soon as Christ had said, give us daily bread, he adds, and forgive us. He joins the petition of forgiveness of sin immediately to the other of daily bread to show us that though we have daily bread, yet all is nothing without forgiveness. Your daily bread means nothing if you don't have forgiveness. He goes on, If our sins be not pardoned, we can take but little comfort in our food. As a man that is condemned takes little comfort from the meat you bring him in prison without a pardon, so though we have daily bread, yet it will do us no good unless sin be forgiven. Think about think about a man on death row. I know we, our country doesn't practice capital punishment hardly at all anymore, but a man on death row, if he actually expects to be executed, you could bring, you know, what do they usually do? They usually offer him his last meal and let him get whatever he wants. I don't know about you, but if I'm on death row, uh, the nicest steak dinner in the world is not going to make me feel much better. I might eat it. I might not even be able to eat it. It's a wonder any of them ever finish a meal on that night before. How much could, you know, how much of an appetite could such a person have? Well, think about this. We think of that as the worst case. How much worse of a case is it? How much worse is the condition of a sinner uh, who's outside of Christ, no matter how well-fed or well-to-do he or she may be, than even that man on death row? Might not feel like they're in a prison, might not feel like they have a sentence hanging over their head, but they do. It's a wonder they have any appetite at all. Matthew Henry goes as far as to say, Our daily bread does but feed us as lambs for the slaughter if our sins be not pardoned. It's fattening them up for the slaughter. So this morning I ask, what about you? What is the state of your soul before God? Do you have all of your daily needs met? I assume you do. Do you have all your daily needs met and then some? Do you have more than you could possibly need? And yet, do you lack the peace from God uh, that comes only through having your, your sins forgiven? through faith in Christ. All the things in the world don't make up for any of that. What does Jesus say when he says in in the Gospels, what does it profit a man if he gains what? The whole world and yet loses his soul. So this morning, let this request of the Lord's Prayer, as simple as it may sound, let let it teach you to seek forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ. Don't settle for daily bread while your soul is starving for the bread of life, which is far more important. And see here also that if Jesus teaches you to ask for forgiveness of your debts and sins, then what does that mean? It means he stands ready to forgive. He stands ready to show mercy and to forgive the repentant. 
It's, it's a great kindness of God that so often in the scriptures, he tells us to ask for forgiveness. He, he shows us to ask for forgiveness. Our call to worship, Psalm 32. I mean, David is confessing his sins and he confesses and praises God for his mercy and says, you know, I will instruct you with my eye upon you. Like, he knows how great it is to be forgiven and so he's going to show, show others, uh, how to find that same Mercy and forgiveness. And there's a second thing, at least, to consider about uh, why these two things, these two requests are added together or connected together. And that is if a person can't trust God for the lesser things, for his daily bread, for his material needs of this life, how is he or she ever going to be able to trust God for the far greater things like forgiveness of sin and the salvation of their souls? Jesus kind of eases us us into it. He tells us to ask for the lesser thing, and then ask for the greater thing. If we trust God for our material things, certainly we can trust God for the salvation of our souls according to his promise in the gospel. William Perkins, the the um, great Puritan writer, he writes this, the reason of this order is this, the order between the two uh, requests. Christ makes the former petition, daily bread, a step unto these, the last two. For a man must rest upon God's providence for the preservation of his body, that will that will rely upon his mercy for the salvation of his soul. He that cannot be persuaded that God will give him bread will hardly be resolved that he will forgive him his sins. See the connection there? Well, I think that brings us to, we're going to look at a couple things in our text, uh, three if we have time. The first thing is the request itself. What is the request found here in verse 12? It's pretty simple. Forgive us our debts. What does it mean to ask God to forgive us our debts? And, you know, there's a lot of words that we Christians use that's found, these words that are in the Bible so often, and we throw them around, words like grace, uh, without explaining them sometimes, without, we sort of assume we know what they mean, but we don't really think through what the word actually means. What does it mean to be forgiven? What is it, what is forgiveness? What is God doing when he forgives your sins and trespasses? Well, the word forgive, uh, has the idea, the word that's used here in, in Matthew 6, has the idea of sending something away. The idea of sending something away or removing it. Psalm 103, 12, uh, Psalm 103, verse 12, describes God's forgiveness of our sins this way. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he do what? So far does he remove our transgressions from us brings to mind the, the scripture reading from this morning in Leviticus chapter 16. It's a picture of the scapegoat. What, is, what does the priest do? He confesses the sins of the people over the goat, and then someone leads it away, removes it as far away as they can. That's a picture of, of how God forgives our sins. He pays for them with the one goat, but he removes them. The picture of removal is with the other goat. And, you know, we sometimes, I think, picture God uh, as forgiving the way that we do. And we're going to look at that as well because Jesus brings that up in the next half of this request. But sometimes what do we do? We kind of sort of forgive, but we kind of keep one in our hip pocket. You know, we kind of keep a record of wrongs despite what 1 Corinthians 13 uh, says. But what does the scapegoat teach? That God removes them far away. And if he didn't, it wouldn't be much forgiveness if he did not. Now, in that, that text we looked at this morning, we're told that there were two goats, one used as the sin offering on the Day of Atonement, and that one goat was to be killed and offered as a sacrifice to the Lord, while the other goat, the scapegoat, after having the sins of the people confessed over it, would be sent away, never 
to return. Think about it. Both those goats together and everything else uh, are a picture of the work of Christ for your salvation if you're a Christian here today. It took both of them to be a complete picture of what Christ does in saving us through his gospel. Remember, what, what did John the Baptist in John one twenty nine? what did John the Baptist call Jesus? Behold the Lamb, not a Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's talking about the same kind of picture. On the cross, what did Jesus do? He made atonement for our sins. He paid the full price for our sin. And he carried our sins far away from us into the tomb. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, you know, written 700 years before Christ's birth. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has what? Laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took our sins and reckoned them or imputed them to Christ on the cross. And so if you're in Christ, he imputes Christ's righteousness to you. That's, that's the only reason that you can be forgiven for your sins. Without the death and resurrection of Christ, there is no forgiveness. You know, God doesn't forgive by, I know nobody actually does this anymore, but uh, you've heard the, the saying, sweeping something under the rug. Now, you would never clean your house that way, I hope, but what does that mean? It means you're kind of acting like it, like it isn't there. Is that what God does? Does God pretend? Does God make believe when he forgives your sin? Is it under the rug in heaven and God's just kind of pretending not to look under the rug? No, he pays for your sins. That's why he can forgive you and no longer treat you according to your iniquities. The only reason that we can ask God for forgiveness of our sins is because our debt of sin has been paid in full by the only one capable of paying it in our place. And that's Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. So I think maybe the first thing... It, it kind of goes without saying, but not everybody thinks this. The first thing that we might have to learn from this request in this model prayer that Jesus teaches us and how to pray is that we actually need forgiveness. You know, there are people, I won't mention names, but I, I remember a certain president recently in recent uh, months had, had said that he didn't never pray for forgiveness. If you can imagine thinking that you don't have any need of forgiveness, from a holy God. Well, this, this, this request tells us in no uncertain terms that we need forgiveness. There is a debt of sin that needs to be paid and forgiven. In fact, uh, it, you know, in other words, it means that we're all sinners. There's another word that we throw around kind of casually, but what does Romans 3.23 say? For all have sinned and fall short or come short of the glory of God. Now, who was Jesus teaching to pray here in the Lord's Prayer? The first time. When he first taught it, who was he talking to? The disciples, those who had left all and followed him. To teach them, and through them, us, to pray for the forgiveness of our sins, similarly to praying for daily bread, what does it imply about us? Even as as Christians, we still sin, we still need forgiveness on a pretty ongoing, even daily basis. The Lord's Prayer teaches us that in this life we never outgrow our need to continually confess our sins to God and ask His forgiveness. Side note, I don't know that anybody here has dealt with this. I hope you have not. But this this teaching in the Lord's Prayer, as simple as it may sound, it also rules out perfectionism. Now there are people, even in our day, that go around teaching that Christians can come to a point in this life of sinless perfection. Well, if so, then the whole, half the Lord's Prayer mean, means nothing to them. Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, 
you know, ask for forgiveness, well, except you in the back. You know, the, the really good people don't need this, but, you know, the disciples did. Is anybody in this life, can anybody say, well, I'm, I'm better than Peter and James and John and the rest? And they certainly had to confess their sins as well. Not only that, but praying for the forgiveness of our sins and our debts ought to be a regular part of both private and corporate prayer. One of the things that's easy to overlook in the Lord's Prayer is the plurals. This is a grammar lesson, right? What does it say? You know, give who our daily bread? Us, our, it's plural. Forgive us our debts. As we, it's all corporate, it's all plural. We should keep each other in mind as we pray these things and pray these things together as as well. Well, this one thing I think we need to figure out and, and take a look at is the fact that our, our sins here in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew's text are referred to as debts. Forgive us our debts. What does it say about our sin? This is a picture of sin. What does it say about sin? Uh, that is a, it is a picture of a debt. Sin puts you in debt to God. You know, being in debt is no fun. Being in debt to another person is no fun. Being in debt to God uh, should be a pretty sobering thought. What every person owes to God as his or her creator is obedience. God made you, God sustains you, and so we owe, you owe God obedience, personal obedience, that you do it yourself, perpetual. In other words, you're always obeying, and perfect obedience. That's the kind of obedience every human being ever born owes to God, and no human being except for Christ himself has done that. And so we owe him obedience. And even if we had done everything God commanded, no one except Christ has ever done this, but let's say that you're, you have never sinned, for hypothetical, for argument's sake. You've never sinned. You've always done God's will perfectly, perpetually, and personally. What does Jesus say? You're, you're an unprofitable servant. You've done the bare minimum. That's the bare minimum. We haven't even done the bare minimum. We have fallen so far short of God's glory and perfection and obedience, uh, not to mention our own transgressions. That's the debt that we owe to God. Ever since the fall of, of mankind and Adam's sin back in Genesis 3, we've all failed to obey God. We've all transgressed His holy law in more ways than we care to admit or comprehend. And that debt of sin, you know, it's like, it's like everything, every, so often I come back to Isaiah 6. We don't understand how great our sin is until we get a glimpse, just a little glimpse of God's glory and God's holiness. When, when Isaiah saw the, the vision of God in the temple, what happened? He realized how sinful he really was. And he said, I'm a dead man. I'm dead man walking. Why? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among the people. Everywhere I look, there's unclean lips. It's not just me, it's everybody. It's everyone. <laughs> Our debt of sin is unrepayable by us. We can't even start, we can't go to God and say, you know, I'll make a down payment, I'm good for the rest. There's no payment plan that we could possibly uh, use to begin to repay it. That's why in Matthew chapter 18, uh, in, in the parable of the unforgiving servant, what does Jesus picture our sin as? A financial debt. He says in Matthew 18, 23 to 27, he says, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared, you know, likened, to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed, there's the that idea again, who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, if you have a study Bible or if you have notes, you know, little footnotes at the bottom of the page, 
They're all over the map. As far as what 10,000 talents amounts to, I won't try to, to pretend to know exactly what that is. Um, but, it, you know, it might be something, you know, nearing our national debt. You know, so many zeros behind the number that it's almost, it might as well be infinite. That's, that's, the, that's the point of this picture. When he, when he says 10,000 talents, everybody back then in the first century who heard him talking, who heard him preaching, when they heard that, they probably looked at each other like, how in the world would anybody rack up that much debt? Like, he would, he would have used all the king's treasury and then some. It's an, it's the, the point is not that it's a realistic debt for a, a servant to, to really rack up. The point is, it's an unrepayable debt. It's an unfathomable debt that he couldn't begin to repay. And he says, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Could he actually do that? Could he ever hope to repay? No. And this is out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, the rest of that parable goes on to, to paint a less flattering picture because what does that unforgiving servant do? Like the title of the parable says. He, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it for you and paraphrase. Remember, he was forgiven an, an infinite debt. And then he finds, it says, a fellow servant. You know, he owed a king the debt. A fellow servant, who knows what he actually borrowed, you know, here's 20 bucks or something. But And what does he do? Does he have the joy of his own forgiveness and go to that servant, you know what, forget about it. Uh, you won't even believe what just happened to me. The king uh, was going to sell me into slavery, my whole family, and he said, no, what does he do? It says he grabs him by the throat and says, pay me what you owe. And he had him thrown in jail. What happened? The king found out, what did the king do? The king said, oh, I'm paraphrasing. Oh, that's how it's going to work? Guess what? Back to the jail for you, and you're going to knock it out till you pay the last penny. That's, that's a picture of all of us, owing a debt that's impossible to pay. That's what Jesus was trying to teach in that parable. One of the things is that our, our debt of sin is unrepayable by us. It's a mountain of, of debt to God that we can't begin to pay. And so if you and I are going to be made right with God, we must be forgiven an infinite debt. That that we cannot repay our debt of sin. And how did, how is that possible? How can you and I be forgiven an infinite debt? Well, God, someone, has to pay that debt. God himself has to pay that debt through sending his only son to die in our place, that we might be freely forgiven and made right with him. And that brings us to this, the, the last thing, the, the last part of, of verse 12, the condition for our forgiveness. The condition for our forgiveness, that is forgiving our debtors. Now, I think it's very easy to focus on the first half of this request, forgive us our debts, and not give much thought to what follows. And what does Jesus add there? As we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, the Bible uh, reminds us constantly of the need to forgive one another. There must be a good reason for that. The fact that this Lord's Prayer serves in this way to remind us that forgiveness is going to be necessary should be instructive to us. And why is it necessary? Why isn't it just forgive me my debts? You know, we, we like to think of everything as just me, myself, and Jesus, right? Why is it, why is it forgive us our debts? And why is it necessary? It will be necessary because we all still sin. And very often we all still sin against each other. You know, sometimes you will be the one sinned against. Sometimes the shoe is going to be on the other foot and you'll be the offending party. Uh, you know, none of us like to think of ourselves as that part of the thing. 
So we're always the ones having to offer forgiveness. We don't often think that we're the ones uh, who who are the offending party and have to be forgiven. Uh, what's the old saying? You know, it takes two. Uh, sometimes it's one. Sometimes it's the other. Um, that holds true in marriage. You know, one of my favorite books, Christian books on marriage, is called "When Sinners Say I Do" by Dave Harvey. Uh, I like it not just because of the title. Don't get me wrong; I've read it. It's a good book, but the title I think speaks volumes. When if you're a Christian, no matter how godly you and your your spouse to be are, you're both marrying a sinner, and that that won't change until you're in heaven, where there won't be any marriage anyway. So when you're in marriage, in state of marriage, you're always married to. A sinner, even the godliest marriage imaginable, is still a marriage between two sinners. Even if it's between two justified and sanctified sinners, it's still a marriage between sinners. And so in marriage, forgiveness is always going to be necessary. He he has a statement throughout the book, I think I've quoted it here a couple times, that kind of sums it up. He says, uh, forgiven sinners forgive sin. Forgiven sinners forgive sin. I think in some ways that's a summary of this request and the condition uh, that Jesus places upon it. This holds through, true in churches as well. You know, do you, what's the old saying? If, you know, you're looking for a perfect church. Well, if you find it, don't join it. You'll screw it up. You know why? Well, every, every church, there is no perfect church this side of heaven. The church, uh, in, in glory is, is perfect, but not down on, on this earth. Every church this side of heaven is made up 100% entirely of sinners. Every single member of the church. Now, if you've joined this church, at no point in our interview did you, were you asked the question, have you ceased sinning? Because you would have, what would you have said? You first, pastor, right? No, we'd say, have you repented? Repentance is a must. Repentance and faith, that's just being converted to Christ. But perfection is not, is not the requirement. Otherwise, there would never be a church. Every church would be empty if we're honest. Every believer in Christ is a forgiven sinner, even a sanctified sinner, but still a sinner nonetheless. And, and just like in marriage, just like in churches, just like in all things, you put, put too many sinners in close proximity for long enough, what's going to happen? Sin, offense, sparks are going, are going to fly, and the need to forgiveness is going to be brought up again. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So when, and not if, when we are sinned against, we have to learn to forgive. When we, uh, we must forgive as Christ has forgiven us, Paul says in Colossians 3.13. Likewise, if you're the offending party, we have to learn to repent and seek out forgiveness and reconciliation. Jesus tells Peter that uh, when our brother sins against us, we have to forgive him, what, 70 times 7. Now, don't do the math. That's not the point. I think it's, it's a picture of infinity. Seven is a picture of completeness. Well, 70 times that means there's no, we're not supposed to have a little clicker, you know, and, and keep track. And when it gets to whatever 70 times seven is, uh, I'm not that good at math, that we, we're not supposed to stop. Um, Colossians 3, 12 to 13, Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, what does he say? Forgiving each other. And then he adds, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. What's the standard? What's the, what's the standard that we're supposed to aspire to anyway? Forgiving as the Lord has forgiven you. Now, the million dollar question is not, is there a connection between our forgiveness and forgiving other people? But in what way is Jesus connecting these two things? Our request to God for forgiveness and our forgiveness to each other. 
Well, he does teach us here to, to pray that God might forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, or another way of putting it is also as we forgive, present, present tense. Is Jesus here teaching that you can earn forgiveness by forgiving other people? No. He does not say, you forgive and then I'll forgive. He doesn't say, you know, I forgive because you forgive. He doesn't say, if you forgive enough, I will forgive you. It's not what he says. Is God's forgiveness of our sins conditional upon, is it based upon your forgiving of other people? No, it is not. You'll notice that this is the only part of the Lord's Prayer in which Jesus explains part of it after the prayer. He does, you know, you'd almost expect him to do that with the whole thing, but he doesn't. But he does add verses 14 to 15 to kind of expand upon what he's saying. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And that's what you're probably thinking right now. You're thinking, that really sounds conditional. That really sounds like God is saying, you better, because if you don't, I'm not going to. Now, it depends how you how you take that. I, I use the word conditional when I stand by that. I think it is conditional, but not the way that you think or the way that you might think it sounds. What if I were to tell you that Jesus connects the forgiveness of our sins with how we forgive others, not to discourage you, but to encourage your heart to have confidence in seeking forgiveness from your Heavenly Father? And uh, I'll give you a couple a couple examples of of. Explanations of this, one from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 105, which is on the fifth petition. It says, what do we pray for in the fifth petition? Answer, in the fifth petition, which is, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we pray that God, for Christ's sake, would freely pardon all our sins, which we are rather encouraged to ask, because by his grace we are enabled from the heart to forgive others. Did you catch that? You're encouraged to ask for forgiveness because by His grace, by God's grace, you are enabled from the heart to forgive other people. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. It's just like when when God said, when when Jesus said about the, you know, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven? Well, if you, in some small way, and it's never perfect, right? If God has worked in you by the grace of Christ, uh, to to cause you to be a forgiving person. In other words, you're born again and you have experienced forgiveness and so you pass along in some lesser way, of course, the forgiveness that you have experienced to other people. You, you are forgiving of others because God has forgiven you. That is a sign of the work of God in your life. And Jesus tells you here in the, in, in the Lord's Prayer that that should encourage you in asking forgiveness. If If you're forgiving, how much greater than you is God? In Jesus Christ. That is what he is saying. In case you're not still not convinced, the Heidelberg Catechism asks the same kind of question written before the other one. Which is the fifth petition? Question 126. Answer, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, that is, be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood, not to impute to us poor sinners our transgressions, nor that depravity which always cleaves to us, and then it says, even as we feel this evidence of thy grace in us, that it is our firm resolution from the heart to forgive our neighbor. That's what this connection is, is about. We are encouraged as believers in Jesus Christ to seek forgiveness from God 
and to be confident in his mercy towards us because we see some small evidence of the work of his grace in our own hearts in that we are well disposed towards forgiving others. Forgiven sinners forgive sinners. It's, it's, an, it's, it's not the only evidence, but it's, a, it's an evidence of the work of God in your life. And so I ask, do you forgive others when they wrong you? Only you can really answer that. Are you a forgiving person? I'm asking, especially if you're a Christian this morning, if you profess faith in Christ, are you a forgiving person? Or are you like the unjust, the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18? If you're a professing Christian and you are a forgiving person, you may have good confidence and assurance when you ask God for forgiveness. Because God is better than you. Is that a newsflash? God's, newsflash, God's better than you. He's more merciful than you. He is kinder than you. He is, I almost said gooder, more good than you. And more good than me. There is more, it's been said, there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. If, if you're a forgiving person, to, to think that God is not going to forgive you if you are in Christ is to impugn God. It is to say, you're not quite as good as me, God. That's the kind of confidence Jesus Christ would have his people have in asking God for forgiveness. If you're a professing believer and you are an unforgiving person, like that unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, Take heed to verse 15 of our text. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If that is the case, if you call yourself a Christian, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, but you find that you are not a forgiving person, that you hold every grudge, you do not give the forgiveness that you expect of God, um, I think the solution is repent. Turn to Christ by faith that your sins might be blotted out and you may have peace with God. Hebrews 12.14, it says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Same kind of a conditional statement there. Is the writer of Hebrews saying that you pursuing peace uh, and you striving for holiness makes you right with God? No. But if you aren't holy, what, are you going to see God? No. Who does that? If you're a Christian, why why are you going to walk more and more in holiness of life? Because God is at work in you in the grace of sanctification. And so he tells us to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. How good is our Heavenly Father, if you're a Christian this morning, that he invites you, commands you even, teaches you to ask him for forgiveness. He knows, what does the Bible say? He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows how prone we are to doubt his goodness. We know how prone we are to, to not think that he is, uh, will be forgiving and give us grace in time of need. So he commands us in the Lord's Prayer and teaches us, puts the words in our mouths, forgive us our debts. And what a great blessing forgiveness is. Our call to worship this morning, Psalm 32, the first two verses say this. Psalm 32, verses 1 to 2. Blessed, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, his sin atoned for. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, is the day of covering. Uh, whose sin is covered, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit, in whose spirit there is no deceit. The forgiveness of your sins might be the greatest blessing you could ever know. It's, it's the one that without it, nothing else matters. It's the, it's the crowning blessing of God's grace. And so this morning I asked, do you know the blessing of having your, your sins forgiven?
and having your sin covered by the blood of Christ in your place? Do you know what it feels like to have the crushing burden of your iniquity removed from your back and no longer have it countered against you? You can through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I've started to read uh, the, the Pilgrim's Progress to the kids, uh, and we haven't gotten to this point yet, but it's my favorite part in the whole story. Remember Pilgrim? He's, he's fleeing the city of destruction, even leaving his family behind, and he's going to the wicked gate, going to the, the city on the hill. And what's on his back? He's on this journey. He's got this burden on his back. He can barely walk. He gets bogged down in the mud, and, and it's weighing him down. And when he sees the cross, what happens to it? It rolls off his back and into the tomb, and the stone seals it away. That's that's your sin. Your sin is a burden on your back. Do you know what it's like to have that removed from you? To have the burden, the crushing weight of your sins removed as far as the east is from the west. You can have that. You can know what that feels like if you turn to Christ by faith. Praise God for his mercy in Jesus Christ, that he is a God in whom there is abundant redemption and forgiveness for our debts of sin. Amen. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of your Son. We thank you that you have made a way that uh, that we can be saved. As sinners like us can can know what it's like to have our sins paid in full, to no longer have the, that crushing burden on our backs. Uh, that we can know what it's like to have our sins removed from us as far as the east is from the west, because you've you've removed them from us and reckoned them on your Son. On the cross, we thank you that you loved sinners such as us that much that you sent your only begotten Son to die, to live, and to die in our place, that we might have uh, His righteousness put to us, uh, to our account by faith, that we might be forgiven of all of our sins and be reckoned righteous in your sight, that we might have, uh, might know the peace with God that passes understanding that only comes through being justified uh, through faith. In Christ, Lord, thank you that you are a God who forgives sin. Thank you that you are a God who, even in our weakness, you command and teach and and show us uh, to to pray on a day, on a regular basis together for the forgiveness of our debts. Lord, we ask that you would be pleased to do that. That you would forgive us. That you would make us a forgiving people. Make us people that, as forgiven sinners, we forgive sin. Uh, we pray that if anybody here this morning is still in their sins and does not have peace with you, that you would. By your grace and the power of your spirit, open their eyes even today that they might look to Christ and live and know the blessing of forgiveness and having all of their sins forgiven in him and being made right with you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.